Hello and welcome to the Crystal Podcast on iCode Media. Today I'm going to do something a little bit different. This is sort of a monologue, but really I wanted to give you a peek behind the curtain of a project I've been working on and some information and kind of data that I've been gathering. And ultimately it tells the same story or very similar story in my opinion about what we've had conversations on this podcast numerous times, specifically with Richard Edlow. But I think it's really interesting. If you haven't heard those episodes before, go back and listen to them. Richard Edlow was a great conversation, in my opinion. Please enjoy this idea sharing, whatever we want to call it today, monologue. Uh, As always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, share it with your friends, and support those who support us. As you know, patients with vitreous floaters are often frustrated by their symptoms. The challenge as clinicians is to offer solutions for our patients for vitreous floaters that are effective. But more often than not, the options of YAG vitreolysis and vitrectomy are not practical because the benefits don't outweigh the risks. That's where vitreous health from MacuHealth comes into play. Previously on the podcast, I've discussed the FLIES study with Dr. John Nolan, and the bottom line is that I can be confident prescribing this for my patients with floaters because I can tell them a large randomized placebo-controlled trial found that after six months of supplementation with vitreous health, floaters were reduced in size by approximately 30%, and 70% of patients had an improvement in their symptoms. Vitreous health has been great for my patients, and we really feel like we have a viable option to treat patients with vitreous floaters now that we didn't have before. If you're not utilizing vitreous health for your patients, reach out to your Macchia Health representative now. Emerging presbyopes and emetropic presbyopes can be tricky. These patients want and need additional help at near, but they can be resistant to solutions that create even mild distance blur. The MyDay multifocal lens has been great for our presbyopic patients. It allows those patients to transition into a multifocal more easily and more comfortably. And we've had this lens for long enough now that we have been able to see the simple and how simple the adaptation can be when adjusting from lower ad designs to higher ad designs. When prescribing MyDay contact lenses, you can feel confident about your environmental impact because for every MyDay contact lens sold in the United States, CooperVision's partner, Plastic Blank, collects and converts an equal amount of ocean-bound plastic through their global network. MyDay multifocal contact lenses will provide your patients with a great quality of vision and comfortable lens wearing experience, all while making a difference in our environment. So if you haven't started utilizing MyDay Multifocal in your practice, I'd encourage you to reach out to your CooperVision representative to get started. So listen, what I wanted to do today was cover some information and dive a little bit deeper into some stuff that I've been looking through for some different companies and and also for iCode as well to try to get an understanding of what we're seeing within the marketplace within optometry. I have really strong opinions and ideas about why we see what I'm about to share, but I'm not going to share those opinions with you today, or I'll try not to. Um, At the very end, I'm going to talk about where I I see opportunity for the profession and sort of steps, finite steps that I think somebody can take to potentially avoid this situation. But let's look at the data. And and, and I also want to say that this is not an indictment of any one specific state in the profession. When we analyze this data across states, across the country, it is essentially the same. It tells the same stories. Uh, whatever those stories you decide to glean from them, 
I will, I mean, obviously I've talked about them before, but I, and I'll talk about them again. But for this episode, I just want to dive a little bit deeper into the data. The other thing I want to tell you is that if you're not watching this on YouTube, most of my episodes on the podcast are really intended to be audio as a primary driver. We do capture video, but this is supposed to be audio as the primary driver. And I like to discuss things that way. But for this episode, what we're going to do is we're going to capture it on video. I'm going to show some information, some raw data, and then some of my statistical analysis of that data and let you see what I'm seeing. I'm going to be a little bit peek, a little bit of a peek behind the curtain. So let's start off and, and say that one of the things I was trying to tease out and one of the suspicions I had was that we have this, or maybe not even suspicion that I had, but basically this conversation among the community, the optometric community, and you're seeing different terms. So terms like medical optometrist or primary care optometrist or comprehensive optometrist or optometry, what do we use? What sort of descriptor do we need, if any, to describe what optometry does? And in my mind, I don't think we need a descriptor per se, but when you actually talk about what people do in practice and the way they practice, it's really quite different. And if we don't understand the terms that we're using, calling one person an optometrist and another person an optometrist might be very confusing to the public. And it also might be confusing to the way that the public public's perception of what they might be able to get from an optometrist, the services they can get for an op, from an optometrist. And so to tease this out in the data, what I wanted to look at was, let's take a specific test, and you could do this with any test. We, we often will look at the distribution of 99 codes to refractions, or 99 codes to comprehensive exams, or OCTs. You could do this with a lot of different things, but it gives you information, one, about what you're doing in terms of your own specific practice, and two, where you might see opportunity to expand into. If you identify a large patient population in your demographic where they have a, a certain need, if you understood that need and understood your current patient population, you don't have to guess anymore about which new piece of technology you need to add to your practice. It will be intuitive and you will know how much revenue that, that technology will generate on your practice by primarily serving that patient's need. And so what I wanted to do was pick a widely utilized code or should what be widely utilized code in a very large state. And, you know, primarily we use visual field testing for glaucoma patients on a regular basis, but obviously visual field testing is part of our wheelhouse of what optometry does. It's part of our clinical practice guidelines from a glaucoma standpoint. It's part of the clinical practice guidelines for to do on an annual basis for all of our glaucoma suspects. If we think about the prevalence of that in a patient population over the age of 40, you would expect 2.1% of a Caucasian population over the age of 40 to have glaucoma. And then if you throw risk factors for glaucoma, where you'll run additional tests on those patients that are suspicious for glaucoma, you know, I think it's reasonable to think that five to 10% of a population over the age of 40 probably is at risk for glaucoma and ought to be managed based on our AOA clinical practice guidelines. I think 10% is probably a conservative estimate, but if we can go a little bit more conservative and say 5%, then you can sort of start to sift through how many fields somebody might be doing just within glaucoma. So fields seem to be a widely utilized piece of technology. 
Texas is a very big state. Within Texas, there's some really good data. So that's another reason I, I picked Texas is because the Texas State Board publishes pretty current data on the number of licensees and and parses those li licensees based on demographic. And, and even within Texas, there is a glaucoma certification so we can know that information. So just to give you some quick numbers um, and their estimates, but these, these are estimates for starters. The... State Board of Optometry in Texas has about 4,500 licenses. And of those 4,500 licenses, there's about 60% that hold glaucoma therapeutic certification. So that's about 2,700 optometrists in Texas that are authorized to treat and manage glaucoma. So then I said, okay, well, great. Let's, let's look at the CMS data. So in the same year, 2021 data, Medicare has published utilization data on every single optometrist, every single medical doctor in the country. You can search that data. It's it's not the easiest thing to search, but if you understand how to search that data with the tools that they provide, you could do it and it's achievable. And so what we did was we we searched through the data. We ran a report for anybody that has a degree of OD in the state of Texas and uh, asked for a specific service, which was 92083 visual field, threshold visual field. And, uh, and then we, we get a report. And in that report, we find not 2,700 optometrists that have billed an, a visual field to Medicare in that same year, not 2,000, not 1,000. I feel like I'm Ron Popeil. Uh, you find 777 optometrists that have billed uh, a field to Medicare. Now, 777 out of 2,700 therapeutic optometrists out of 4,500 optometrists in the state. So you can see how it kind of dwindles down. And the question is that I want you to consider is why would this be the case? Of course, this data isn't specifically accurate. It's not entirely accurate because it doesn't include things like Medicaid. So that's going to drive the number up a little bit if you include those patients. It won't include private payers. So if you include that, those are in there as well. But ultimately, the question that I really keep coming back to and I want you to ponder is why, if we have 2,700 licenses, therapeutic licenses, and we have 777 that are billing anything to to Medicare for visual fields, why is there a discrepancy? What, what do you think is going on there? The other thing that I, that I wanted to do is I wanted to take a deeper dive into that. So you'll see here on your screen that you have, this is the raw data. And in this raw data, you're going to see that the highest, the, the largest uh, biller for visual fields is, uh, I've eliminated the doctor's names, but is uh, about 1147 visual fields in that year. But you can see how it very quickly scales off. So between that 1147, by the time you get to the just the top 10%, you get down to 120. So, so the top 10% have a span of 120 visual fields a year to uh, basically tenfold that 1147 visual fields per year. And then I think that top 10% can skew the data a ton. So in the analysis that we did, we looked at what does uh, what does this information tell us 
about the data. So I ran a, a general statistical analysis. And if you're watching the screen, I, I looked at the mean, the median, the standard deviation, uh, the min and the max. And then I, I basically eliminated the top 10%. So I said, look, look those are going to skew everything further. So let's get rid of them and look at all of the other pieces of data. So um, let's get rid of the highest billers and just look at what the kind of normal range is. And when you look at that, it's really still quite interesting. You know, 20. Um, so what it shows us is that there's basically 100, 705 optometrists remaining after you eliminate that top 10%. And the span now is between 116 and 111 services. So what that means is of those 705 optometrists, there is a span of ordering and billing for 11 visual fields in a year, all the way up to 116 visual fields for, per year. And so what I wanted to do was parse that information down into deciles. So 10% of the lowest, then every 10% make a cut in the data. And we'll call those classes of data. And, and so what we found was that uh, doctors, there was... 223 doctors in that cohort of 705 that build between 11 and 21 visual fields in that year. There were 164 that build between 22 and 32. That's the second decile, uh, 22 and 32 visual fields per year. There were 84 that, that build 33 to 43 visual fields per year, 44, uh, between 44 and 54 visual fields per year. There were 68 and then everything kind of is, is diminishing thereafter. So as you get more visual fields, you get significantly fewer doctors. In fact, if you think about, um, doctors that build over a hundred visual fields, in Texas, in this bottom 90%, there was only 26 doctors in the state that build that. And if you add that to our initial 77, you basically have um, less than 100 doctors in the entire state, 100 optometrists in the entire state of Texas that build for 100 visual fields or more. So the question I have is, all right, well, if the prevalence data shows us that patients over the age of 40 if you just saw a thousand patients a year over the age of 40, then you would expect at 5% of those patients to be glaucoma suspects. At minimum, you would expect 50, um, 50 glaucoma suspects that you'd run a visual field. So the question, you know, there's lots of questions about why that's the case. So I, I want to stop there. And I want to ask you, if you were analyzing this data and, and trying to understand what it says about our profession, what would be the answers you'd come to? And how would you interpret those answers in a, in a long-term assessment of our profession? This is not, again, this is not an indictment. I think it's just an interesting exercise to see opportunity in the profession and also challenges in the profession. And so one of the things I wanted to leave this podcast with was sort of give you my understanding of the challenges that exist in these, in these scenarios. And I think understanding these sort of challenges and then opportunities uh, for these to, to overcome these challenges will allow for kind of a systematic approach to making sure that if this is a mistake, meaning that we have an intention to 
build fields and provide fields, what's the, why aren't they getting billed? You know, my, I, again, I have suspicions on, on these things based on my working with individual offices, but, um, but I want to leave you with some tips. So I think the solutions in general here, uh, or maybe, maybe some opportunities that, that I see the profession has is there's really sort of three steps in building a complete practice that is not dependent on managed vision care. Now there's, I can go a lot more in depth on why I think managed vision care in this scenario is a driver, but I think ultimately what it comes down to is there's a lot of uncertainty in education around billing and coding, education around practice management. And that uncertainty lies in many different interpretations. You know what I typically try to do on the podcast, and for those of you who are subscribers to iCode Education, we try to give you a liberal interpretation, we try to give you a conservative interpretation, and then try to show you where uh, you can be safe and how you can be safe with documentation and interpretation of those rules. But there still exists some gray area. And so I think the first challenge is, does a practice really understand how to bill for acute ocular diseases as they present. And the vast majority of practices, so this really comes down to, can you apply 9-9 codes appropriately? Do you get, are you comfortable knowing when you're at a level two, level three, level four, level five? Predominantly, you're gonna be in level threes and level fours, but this is kind of the very first step into really mastering the idea of comprehensive care, primary eye care medical eye care, um, I, I think optometry in general. The first question is patient comes in and typically it's gonna be an acute red eye or an acute visual disturbance. Oftentimes that is a symptom of a retinal tear, retinal detachment, posterior vitreous detachment, um, sudden vision loss. Can you take care of an acute problem? And, and the answer is yes, you all can. You have the knowledge, education and training to do that. But can you incorporate that management in a way that that one, you feel comfortable managing. I'm, I'm confident you can do that. Two, you can communicate that to a payer and appropriately get paid and then defend that payment under an audit because you've documented appropriately. So that would be like step one, right? Managing acute ocular diseases and billing for those acute ocular diseases. Step two, we've been working a lot with a lot of different offices recently on what I would call total patient care. And essentially that would entail the movement of a, an approach to applying these ideas within acute care into how do I manage a patient that comes to me for a comprehensive exam underneath a managed vision care plan or out of pocket with no with with or without chief complaints that are related to some sort of underlying disease and how do i identify those diseases and communicate to patients about those diseases effectively and then monitor those diseases based on our clinical practice guidelines and evidence based guidelines in a way that fits within my practice. And, and really if you think about that that's what we call total patient care that comes down to glaucoma mainly glaucoma, macular degeneration, vitromacular interface diseases, meibomian gland dysfunction, dry eye. You could probably throw in binocular vision. You could probably throw in myopia management. And, and that would give you a pretty stable wheel, just managing those types of things, but managing them in a way that allows you to 
uh, devote the, the time necessary to, to managing that chronic ocular disease and, and provides value to your office. There's a lot that goes into that. So that's step two. If, if your practice really masters that, now you can sort of approach step three, where the, the sort of pinnacle in all of this is the option to be free of managed vision care. The most common questions I get include, what ophthalmological codes or evaluation and management codes should I use? What ICD-10 codes do I need to bill with this CPT code? What CPT codes can be billed together and what can't? And my favorite, how do I manage a patient who has diabetes who comes in for a quote-unquote routine eye exam? These questions really highlight the confusion and uncertainty that serves as a daunting hurdle for providers, makes it more challenging for them to care for their patients and provide those patients with the best opportunity for a lifetime of ocular health and clear vision. That's why we built iCode Education for this specific purpose. Our mission is to provide optometrists with resources to help you understand disease states, revenue cycles, and billing and coding so that you can put that on autopilot and truly care for your patients. Check out iCodeEducation.com. That's E-Y-E-C-O-D-E Education.com. We've developed a premier billing and coding bundle that includes all of our billing and coding resources in one place. We also have a 10% discount code just for listeners of this podcast. Enter the coupon code E-Y-E-C-O-D-E-M-E-D-I-A-22 at checkout. We'd love to work with you. Check out iCodeEducation.com. One of the challenging things with patients is that when they invest in a really high quality pair of glasses and customized lenses, occasionally it can be difficult to keep those lenses clean, scratch-free, and smudge-free. Now, we have the ability with Crizal Sapphire HR lenses to offer our patients a best-in-class anti-reflective coating that is also resistant to scratches, smudges, and deposits. This means that patients spend more time enjoying clear and comfortable vision and less time caring for their lenses. So remember that you can provide patients with the best in quality, best in class, transparency, clarity, durability, and UV protection in a single Crizal coating. If you want to learn more about Crizal Sapphire HR, contact your Essilor account executive or visit EssilorPro.com backslash Crizal. So how can we um, free ourselves if we choose to free ourselves from managed vision care? How do we do that? And ultimately, when we see practices get to this step, it's not so much about a reactionary uh, issue. It's more, and, and they don't really get upset. You know, the AOA is devoting a lot of time and our state associations are devoting a lot of time and treasure to battle managed vision care companies. And, and I'm all in, I'm, I'm with them on that. I think it's, I think they should be doing that. The thing that I kind of run through my mind is yes, managed vision care companies are giving us no raises. They don't need to. We could talk about that. They, you know, if I dropped one of those plans, they would backfill me with three or four other people that are waiting to get on the panel. So I have no illusions that I'm really that valuable to them. So what is the, why would they give me a raise? But let's say they did give me a raise. Maybe they wanted to give me a 10% raise. If, if, if I were making, so we'll, we'll use a higher number, right? Like if I, if I had a managed vision care plan that was paying me $70 for a comprehensive exam and refraction, if they gave me a 10% raise tomorrow, would that move the needle in my practice? I'd like to say it would, but, but I suspect it's not going to make much difference at all. It might, you know, it might be a nice little bump, but I'll probably never feel it. 
We've, we've had so many other increases over the last 15 years in practice that that small one-time gesture will be nice. I'd appreciate it. I'd tell them thank you, but it's not going to make up for, for all the other years of no raises. So what's the answer? And, and that's really the, the idea of in, integrating step two allows you to then understand the patients that come to you for primary vision care, managed vision care consultations, and those patients that then tear off and, and they decide to purchase glasses or contact lenses that they needed from you. Uh, the ones that had acute diseases in step one that you were able to manage. And then the ones that have chronic diseases that you're able to manage. You can actually run those analytics and know in your practice how much that managed vision care is driving patients into your practice and are those patients actually profitable for the practice. And so I always like to start from, look, let's take care of the patient. But that patient, if we do take care of them, they should take care of the practice. And I, I believe that firmly. But step three then allows us to analyze whether or not it has been beneficial to the practice. And then if we decide to drop managed vision care plans, we could do it strategically as opposed to being reactionary with it. And so I think if we're going to tie this all the way back to that data, we're clearly in these states, in this state, and I think all every state that I've analyzed is very similar to Texas, uh, if not worse than Texas in many states. So we have this underperformance. Why does that happen? Why? Why do you think that happens? And can a solution, a strategic solution to understanding codes for acute care, applying that with a larger plan in your practice for the disease management of chronic care that is commensurate with our AOA clinical practice guidelines, and then allow you to decide this managed vision care plan is, is good for my practice because it delivers the patients that I want strategically, as opposed to I have to take it because I need patients in my in my chair. So with that, I hope this was helpful. If you got to view this on the video, you will see some, some information. And we're going to dive a lot deeper into this in future conversations. I will tell you why I think this occurs. You've probably heard me talk about it in the past. But I hope that, that you enjoyed this conversation or this conversation with myself, this monologue. And... Um, if you have any ideas, I would love to hear for you, from you. You can reach out to us on social media, on LinkedIn, on Instagram, on Facebook. You can email us directly. We'd love to hear your insights on why you think this happens. It's not that challenging, but I think there's a couple different layers to it. So I'd love to hear it. As always, thanks a lot. We'll see you guys on the next one.